Welcome to the Bone Coach Show, dedicated to helping you understand all things related to diet, lifestyle, bone health, and how you can live and thrive with low bone density and osteoporosis. I'm your host, Kevin Ellis, certified health coach, health and wellness speaker, and above all else, your bone coach. After being diagnosed with osteoporosis in my early 30s, I transformed my health through diet and lifestyle and now help my clients and community members do the same through my online coaching practice, Bone Coach. Look, there are no quick and easy cures for low bone density, but the choices we make every single day can have a powerful impact on our bones, our health, and our general well-being. I'll share the research, interview the experts, and help you figure out how to get the conditions right in your body so you can better your bones through diet and lifestyle. Short disclaimer, I'm not a medical doctor, and this show should not be considered medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare team before making medical decisions and changes to your diet and lifestyle. With that being said, let's get on with the show. So, you know, we talked a lot about foods and foods you can consume in order to heal, but actually the most anti-inflammatory thing you can do from a nutrition perspective is actually fast. By not eating, you reduce mechanical stress on the gut lining. So we talked about if there's tears and damage to that gut lining, you gotta think about it like almost like a sprained ankle. So if you have a sprained ankle, you're not gonna go out and run, right? You're not gonna do high impact activities so taking the high impact off the gut itself gives it time to heal and repair if you haven't done so already especially if you're newly diagnosed with osteopenia or osteoporosis or if your most recent bone density scan still showed more bone loss go ahead and pause this episode and head over to bonecoach.com to sign up for your free seven day osteoporosis kickstart guide that's going to give you everything you need step by step by step over the next seven days to get on the path to improvement and stronger bones you won't want to miss that so pause this right now head over to bonecoach.com and i'll be here as soon as you get back welcome welcome to this episode of the bone coach show joining us today to explore inflammation and bone health is dr david jockers dr david jockers is a doctor of natural medicine and runs one of the most popular natural health websites in drjoctors.com, which has gotten over 1 million monthly visitors, and his work has been seen on popular media such as Dr. Oz Show and Hallmark Home and Family. Dr. Jockers is the author of the best-selling book, The Keto Metabolic Breakthrough by Victory Belt Publishing, and The Fasting Transformation. He is a world-renowned expert in the area of ketosis, fasting, brain health, inflammation, and functional nutrition. He is also the host of popular Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast. Dr. Jockers lives in Canton, Georgia with his wife, Angel, and his twin boys, David and Joshua, and his daughters, Joyful and Shine. Beautiful names. Absolutely love that. Dr. Jockers, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Kevin. Great to be on with you. Love the work that you're doing. And I love the work that you're doing. I uh, I kind of mentioned earlier, we had a different conversation in another interview that we were doing that I actually had learned from Dr. Jockers kind of as I was coming up through my own health journey and learning some of the things along the way. And he's been just a tremendous person. If you're in the world of functional medicine, you've heard of Dr. Jockers and he's done some amazing work. And I'm really excited to get into what we're going to talk about today because we're going to explore inflammation and its impact on your health and your bones. And this is a really big topic and a big area of discussion. And I think you're definitely the right person to jump in with this. But before we do, I'd love to just get an understanding of how you even came from where you started and what your health journey was like and how you got to the point you're at now. Yeah, for sure. Well, growing up, I was an athlete. So I was a baseball player. I mean, played every sport I possibly could. And I was always into performance. And my mom, actually, while I was 
while I was growing up, uh, she was actually studying to be a massage therapist and eventually a naturopath. And so she tried to change our diet. My dad was, you know, he was not into health. He was junk food. I mean, he, even to this day, he has a very selective palate. And so my mom really tried to convert our family. And I was probably like 10 or 11 years old and I was completely rebelling against everything. But the way that she incentivized me to eat, you know, back then it was like early 90s, it was macrobiotic diet. So it was it was very bland, steamed kale, lima beans, things like that. My mom knows a lot more about health. We teach a very similar nutrition plan now. However, back then, this is what we were eating. And I asked her one day, I'm like, why do I have to eat this kale? It's so bland. I don't like the taste. And she's like, well, you know what? It's going to help your skin. My brother had acne, my older brother. She's like, it's going to help your skin. It's going to help you have more energy. It's going to help you play better. So you're going to be a better baseball player. You're going to be better at school, everything that, that you want to do. And, and I was like, you know what? That makes sense. And so um, she told me, you know, if you're eating a lot of sugar, my brother used to eat chocolate bars and things like that all the time, processed chocolate bars. She's like, that's why he has the acne. And so I started putting this together, like, okay, what I eat actually makes a difference to my health. And so I started making nutrition changes. Now, back then I didn't know enough about my health. And uh, when I graduated high school, got into my early twenties, I became a personal trainer and I was eating six meals a day, 5,000 calories a day, just to maintain my muscle mass. I've always been on the leaner side. I thought I needed to do this. All the bodybuilding magazines said I had to eat, you know, 5,000 calories and 500 grams of protein a day. And so that's what I was doing. And I ended up- The Arnold Encyclopedia. The Arnold yes. Encyclopedia. Yeah. Exactly. Men's health. That's what I was reading all the time, right? Getting my nutrition advice from that. And so, um, so when I ended up getting irritable bowel syndrome. And I went from actually 170 pounds, just full of muscle, 8% body fat, down to about 140 pounds. And I developed orthostatic hypotension where I went from sitting to standing. I would get really dizzy. I have to hold on to something. And I was fatigued throughout the day, had brain fog, trouble sleeping, had all these different health challenges. And I started making changes in my diet. And I started cutting out processed foods and uh, made a lot of different changes and it helped. And along that, along the way there, I met a chiropractor who said, you know, you should be, you should look at going into chiropractic college. And I was a personal trainer and I thought, I want to run community-wide fitness programs. I want to help people improve their health with nutrition and lifestyle. And he's like, you should look into chiropractic. And so I started looking into that and I was like, well, this makes sense. The, the philosophy of chiropractic is that there's an innate intelligence that created your body from two cells and formed you into you know, however many cells scientists say we have 10 trillion cells or whatever it is, and is, is literally working in your body every single moment of every day to heal and regenerate the different cells, tissues, and organs, give you the greatest possible survival advantage. And I was like, wow, that makes sense. And it incorporates a holistic lifestyle focused around nutrition and exercise. I was like, that's me. So I signed up, go to chiropractic college and uh, just the stress of, you know, just uh, the, 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 I was working all the way through. So early on, um, you know, it was an intense program and early on I developed, I, I had another kind of recurrent bout with the irritable bowel and had a lot of different issues. And, uh, that was along, that was basically when I found drmercola.com. This was back in, uh, 2004, 2005, he started talking about the no grain diet. And I also read a book called the maker's diet by a good friend of mine, Jordan Rubin. And, uh, I started, making those changes. And I actually was a vegetarian or, or a, you know, uh, I would eat fish. So I was a lacto ovo pescatarian 
Um, and I thought that was the healthiest diet for me. And so I started coming off grains, legumes, basically following a paleo style, lower carb template, um, grass fed animal product diet and completely transformed my health. I had my energy back, gained my muscle back. I just felt significantly better. In fact, I felt so good that, and I had a lot of 7 a.m. classes that I had to go to and I would work out in the morning before my before my classes started. And I realized I just didn't even have time to eat breakfast and I wasn't hungry in the morning. And so I started intermittent fasting long before I ever heard the term. And I would actually, I was one of those guys, I would bring a gallon jug of water with me to class. And my goal was, you've seen those guys, you get the gallon jug, right? That was you too. Yeah. yeah. And so I would, I would drink a gallon of water between the time I woke up and noon. And I, and I had so much energy. My brain came alive. I actually went, I was actually at the top of my class in graduate school. I felt so good. And I was also feeling amazing in the gym. Like I was lifting more than I had ever lifted. I felt incredible as far as my, my body's ability to adapt. And I would get hungry usually around two or three o'clock and I would eat a whole bunch of food between two or three and maybe let's say seven o'clock at night. And so I had this compressed eating window and I had no idea about the health benefits of intermittent fasting and how it increases your human growth hormone, how it actually uh, stimulates autophagy and my cells were able to heal and regenerate themselves from the inside out. I actually thought it was the water. And I was actually, I was taking exercise physiology. I have a master's degree in exercise physiology as well. And I was like, you know what? The water must be opening up and optimizing the the kind of cross fibers, the, the sarcomeres in my muscles, the cross fiber power, um, the power component of the of the sarcomeres, and that must be why I feel so good. Um, and I'm sure the water was helpful. A lot of good benefits to drinking a lot of water. However, I later realized, about five years later, the scientific benefits of intermittent fasting. And so, this sort of lifestyle completely transformed my life and my health. And I got out of school in 2008, opened my clinic in 2009, just outside of Atlanta, and have just been passionately teaching people about natural health principles ever since then. I started my website roughly around 2012. I was writing articles for a lot of other websites before then and getting a lot of traction. A lot of, uh, a lot of people were reaching out to me and wanting to do long distance consultations and things like that. And so I finally, I eventually created my own website and uh, started YouTube and all that kind of stuff back around 2012, 2013, and it eventually took on a life of its own. And, um, you know, that's at this point, I ended up selling a, selling my clinic in 2019. And uh, I've just been really focused on creating the world's best natural health content on a wide range of topics, really every single natural health topic. That's what our my team and I are, are we're focused on covering and, and really providing the best uh, research-based and easy to read and most thorough content on the internet. And uh, I really believe that we're succeeding in that. That's amazing. And I mean, I would, I would agree with that because I've, I've looked at everything you published out there or many, many things that you publish on your website. And it's a great, amazing resource on your journey too. So that's drjockers.com. Uh, but thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, I, I mean, I understand the journey of being the guy who thinks you just have to eat all the time and, you know, get in there to build as much muscle as you possibly can. And uh, it, it's so great to hear that you made these changes and then you started seeing dramatic changes in your health. And let's talk about inflammation. What is inflammation and how does that actually develop? 
Yeah. So inflammation is our body's natural response to any sort of injury. And it's really a protective mechanism because we know that throughout the history of mankind, more people have died from chronic systemic infections, right? Or actually I shouldn't say chronic, but acute infections that have got in through typically flesh wounds, Meaning, you know, if somebody was out like our, our ancestors before we really had good first aid, you know, they would be out working, hunting or something like that, um, harvesting, and they would get a flesh wound, right? So they would get a big cut in their leg, their arm, whatever it was, and bacteria would get in there because we didn't really have good technology to sterilize it. And it would spread throughout the body and and, and kill them. And, and this is the most common reason why people would die, even in wars and things like that. Most people didn't actually die from the wound. From the actual, like if they were stabbed or shot or whatever it was, typically they were actually dying from the infection that occurred because of the flesh wound. And so our body is hardwired for survival. And so because we were, you know, there's all these different bacteria and microorganisms, their job is to break down decaying matter. And that's what they do when they get inside of our system. Our body has to have a defense against that. And so we created this immune response we call inflammation. And inflammation's job is to prevent against these infectious microbes from getting in and just going going crazy, going wild and culturing all over and getting into our vital organs like our brain and causing meningitis, our lungs and causing pneumonia um, and helping stop them in their tracks and allow us to survive that insult and then go on, recover, heal and really be able to function the way that we're supposed to so we can reproduce, so we can um, you know, live the best life possible. Now, the issue in our society is we're not getting so many flesh wounds. However, our gut itself, our, our intestinal lining is only, particularly in our small intestine, our large intestine is a little bit thicker, but in our small intestine, it's this tube that's only one cell wall. So when we think about our skin, we've got like I think it's somewhere around seven to 12 layers, depending on what part of uh, your, your, your skin you're looking at, that protects the outside environment. So microbes, different uh, you know environmental compounds like pollen, things like that from getting into our body, into our bloodstream through our skin. Whereas in our small intestine, where we get a vast amount of nutrient absorption, we only have one, a one cell wall lining. And that's because our ancestors faced more times where food was scarce than when food was plenty. If our ancestors had tons of food all the time, we probably would have five, six, seven layers, kind of like our skin in our small intestine because nutrient absorption wouldn't be as important as preventing against endotoxins or bacterial toxins from getting into the bloodstream. So we would have prioritized that. But because we face so many times of food scarcity, and obviously we need nutrients in order to create new cells, in order to heal, in order to, to run all of our physiological processes to survive, it's only one cell. The benefit there is we get easy nutrient absorption uh, as long as we're breaking down the food the food compounds into small enough, uh, small enough molecules to seep in there and uh, usable molecules for our cells. However, the downside is it's very easy for environmental toxins as well as bacteria and bacterial toxins, the outer cell walls of different bacteria or fungus or parasites to get into uh, our bloodstream where they drive up inflammation. When our bloodstream or when, when our body senses that we have higher amounts of microbes, whether it's you know live bacteria, live fungus, live 
parasites, um, or fragments of them. We call those endotoxins, or you know, in a sense, poop from these microbes, which again we label into this category of endotoxins. When that's elevated, when it goes beyond a certain threshold in our bloodstream, our body starts to panic. It says, "Oh my gosh." we could be at risk of dying from an acute infection, dying quickly, dying tonight from this infection. So we need to drive up defenses. We need to get our military ready. I know you were a Marine, right? It's like, hey, you know, now we're, we're activating the National Guard here, right? We, we need all defenses on guard and we drive up this inflammatory process. And the goal there is to get whatever the pathogen uh, that we're, we're facing under control so we can survive. The issue is, as long as we're eating and we've got this kind of tear in our gut, we call this leaky gut or intestinal permeability, we've got this damage in our gut, we're constantly pouring out more and more of these endotoxins, bacterial debris, uh, undigested food particles into the bloodstream, and we're constantly turning up inflammation. And then we get into this, this state of chronic systemic inflammation. And over time, that wears down all the different tissues and organ systems in our body and creates major problems. And so leaky gut is a major factor. There are other components too, having too much fat tissue, for example. Fat tissue itself, particularly a type of fat called visceral fat, um, releases. This is the type of fat that actually surrounds our organs, not the type of fat that kind of provides more cushioning and um, thermal support, right? So we have that that's kind of right under our skin. We call it subcutaneous fat. The visceral fat's what surrounds our organs. This is the really unhealthy fat that actually releases um, inflammatory compounds, cytokines. So we're actually uh, pouring out more inflammatory producing molecules when we have this extra fat. Of course, trauma or any sort of injuries that we have, our body says, okay, if there's trauma, more than likely, we may be at risk here for some sort of pathogen getting in. So we need to drive up this inflammatory process. In fact, you know, there's, um, there's, you know, basically there are compounds that are released whenever, whenever a tissue is damaged that trigger an inflammatory an inflammatory process. And again, that's the body saying, okay, we need to break down and repair this, but also we want to make sure that this region which is now more susceptible to infection because it's damaged, we need to make sure that no infection gets in and uh, further ca causes further uh, damage to this, this particular region of our body. And what, like, how is somebody going to know that they're actually, they ha actually have inflammation taking place in their body right now? What are the signs and symptoms? And then are there blood tests or other types of tests that we can objectively look at and say, okay, inflammation is present. We need to address it. Yeah, absolutely. So whenever somebody's inflamed, okay, we typically think, and it can impact people in different ways, but the way that most people, uh, you know, in a sense, feel inflammation will be heat in certain areas, pain, so painful joints, that could be an issue, or just areas that are not functioning properly. Like in your skin, if you have skin inflammation, you may not feel pain, you may, but you may not feel pain, but you might have eczema. You might have you know, dry, scaly skin. You might have acne. That's an inflammatory process on your skin. In your brain, you don't actually have pain receptors. So when people have headaches, that's typically coming from outside of the brain um, where blood vessels are being constricted and different muscles around your skull are actually being impacted there. And that will cause headaches. But your brain itself doesn't feel 
pain. There's no actual direct pain fibers there. And so you might have brain fog, you might have mood disorders like depression, anxiety, sluggish cognitive processes, poor memory. These are all signs of inflammation, trouble losing weight. That can be a classic sign of inflammation, having to clear your throat a lot, believe it or not. So if you eat, particularly if you notice like, hey, I'm eating, every time I eat peanuts, in fact, I had this when I was in graduate school, I would eat peanut butter and I would have to clear my throat and I would feel fatigued all the time. And that was my body actually creating an inflammatory pro, inflammatory response, creating more mucus in my throat. Part of that could be because I had silent reflux where I didn't actually notice acid reflux, but the acid was actually jumping up into my esophagus and my body was responding by creating more mucus in and around the throat. And I had to clear my throat all the time. I would feel extremely fatigued. Fatigue is a, a, a common sign of inflammation. Again, you're not noticing pain. However, your cells are not producing the energy. Your mitochondria are not producing the energy they need. In fact, they go into um, a state where they become more hyper-inflammatory and, and pro-oxidative, where they actually themselves, the mitochondria, are supposed to produce energy when they're supposed to buffer uh, oxidative stress. And so when our body's very inflamed, they signal a danger sign and they actually create more oxidation in order to protect themselves from whatever uh, the inflammatory insult is. And they reduce their... Um, energy creating capacity. We call this kind of a hypometabolic state where they stop producing energy the way they should. So we feel fatigued. We feel um, like we've got, you know, again, sluggish um, brain function. We oftentimes will have trouble losing weight. We might even have thinning hair, right? This is a common sign of inflammation as well. So it could be a lot of different things. And then when we look at labs, a couple markers that we look at, one would be called, would be, it's called C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker. And it's easy, easy test that you can run. A lot of insurance companies run it. We always want to see that under one. Now, the typical lab range won't flag it high, typically unless it's over three. However, if anything over one is a sign of pretty high-level inflammation. In fact, HSCRP, high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, is not even like a really good marker honestly, for inflammation. It's a marker. If it is elevated, we know that you have very high inflammation. I'll see this high on a lot of people. And we know that anything over two, actually, especially if that stays elevated for a period of time, dramatically increases your risk of heart disease, cancer, neurodegenerative conditions, osteoporosis, which I know obviously you're an expert in, um, different uh, autoimmune conditions, diabetes, and so that's definitely a marker you want to get run and be able to look at that on a regular basis. Also, another great marker is ESR, erythrocyte sedimentation rate. And this is kind of looking at, are the blood cells sticking together or are they moving kind of smoothly through your bloodstream? And so when red blood cells stick together, they're not able to basically get oxygen, their, their, their oxygen delivery to cells is reduced. And when the oxygen delivery to your cells reduced, that's when your mitochondria says, okay, there's a problem here and goes back into that hypometabolic pro-oxidative state. So it's really important that we have good functioning red blood cells, good oxygen carrying capacity and good oxygen extraction at the cellular level. So ESR is one way we can look at that. And so if the red blood cells are clumping and dropping in a, in a tube, 
fast, quickly, like faster than 10 millimeters per hour, that's a sign that uh, we have a lot of clumping going on. And the actual negative charge of the red blood cells is reduced. So normally they have kind of this repulsive charge, this negative charge on the outside, and that can be reduced. And there can be, uh, for example, antibodies that actually bind to the red blood cells and create more of a positive charge. And now we start to get more clumping. A lot of people with autoimmune conditions, you'll see higher ESR levels. Um, you know, people with just any sort of chronic inflammatory state can have higher ESR levels. So we'll look at that as well. Another key marker is your fasting insulin. Okay. And I know we're going to talk more about blood sugar, but insulin is this hormone that's really key for getting glucose, which is blood sugar, as well as nutrients into your cell. But the key is you need to have good sensitivity to insulin. Your cells can actually start to reduce their level of sensitivity. We call that insulin resistance. And that can be a major problem. And that happens, that that can happens and, and is very much correlated with inflammation. And so we like to see your um your your fasting insulin. So you should be fasting overnight, getting your blood work done in the morning. So you're fasted, let's say 12 or 14 hours, you go in, it should be under six. Okay. And if it's up over that that's a sign that your body's producing too much insulin. That can be a factor when it comes to inflammation. Also, another marker that we look at is serum ferritin. Ferritin is a storage form of iron. And normally, you know, you need to have some of that. That's a storage form. What happens is a lot of bacteria, parasites, they use iron, even uh, cancer cells will use iron as kind of like a, um, like a fertilizer to help them grow and reproduce, right? And, and cancer cells, obviously they're fast dividing cells. They use a lot of this iron. And so when our body, when, when our innate intelligence says, okay, we have high pathogen load in our system, or we have a high amount of abnormal cells that are growing rapidly, it will start to store more iron and put less iron into the actual serum uh, to be utilized. And we'll start to see this ferritin going up. And so when we start to see ferritin up over, let's say 150. That's a sign we have inflammation going on in our system. We can also have conditions of iron overload as well, where, ha where all of our iron markers are high. And that's a, that's a condition called, um, what is it? Hemochromatosis. And we know that high iron itself is pro-oxidative. So we need a certain amount of iron. That's what actually produces the hemoglobin that's in the red blood cells that brings oxygen to the cell. We talked about how important that is. However, if we have too much iron, we actually create more oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is kind of a precursor to inflammation. When there's high amounts of oxidative stress, it drives up all of our inflammatory pathways and ampl amplifies inflammation in our system. So high iron levels actually can be a major factor here as well. So those are three markers. There's a number of other markers that can be looked at, but that's a great place to start. Um, actually, more than three markers. I mentioned C-reactive protein, ESR, fasting insulin. I also mentioned the serum ferritin as well. And these are, these are not tests that, you know, you can't go to your doctor and get them ordered and get them covered by insurance. These are everyday tests. They're, they're accessible. You can go get these and you can understand kind of where you're at. You did mention blood sugar. 
Let's talk about maybe healthy blood sugar levels. What do those look like? Yeah, for sure. Blood sugar is so important. I, I talked about how those red blood cells will clump. Well, when we have elevated blood sugar, the sugar molecules themselves will actually bind to proteins in our bloodstream and create something called an advanced glycation end product or an AGE. These AGEs, I mean, what do you think that does to, to us? It accelerates the aging process. They create rampant amounts of oxidative stress. And again, oxidative stress, as that goes up, that turns on all the inflammatory pathways in our immune system. And so we have to keep our blood sugar in this kind of delicate balance where it doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low. If it gets too low, now we don't get enough uh, glucose or energy into our brain. And then our, our brain cells, our neurons will become hypometabolic, meaning that they don't have enough energy to run. And so they start to shut down energy production. Many of them will actually die. And then they release a whole bunch of uh, cytotoxic chemicals that actually damage other tissue, other brain cells, other neurons around them. And we get this neuroexcitotoxicity. So hypoglycemia, where we have low blood sugar, very problematic. We probably all experience this at least once in our life where we get really hangry. We get irritable and hangry at the same time. Maybe we have tremendous cravings. We have this massive like desire we have to eat right now. Um, and you know, that's, that's what happens when we have hypoglycemia. That's a big problem in our society today. More people have hyperglycemia where they have too high blood sugar. So they're creating those advanced glycation end products. So both states are toxic. The key is we need to keep our blood sugar very, very stable. So typically, if we're looking at a fasting blood sugar, which I don't think is really the best measurement of overall sugar, but it does give us a window in. Ideally, that fasting blood sugar should be roughly around 80 or so at the bottom end and maybe up around 100 on the top end. Now, there are some caveats to that. I've seen people with fasting blood sugar at 70, and I'm like, okay, do you feel nauseous in the morning? Do you feel like really irritable? Do you have massive cravings? Are you starving when you wake up in the morning? They're like, no, actually, I feel great. I feel really, really good. In fact, I don't feel hungry. I feel like I just get into my day and I, I have great brain energy, great mood. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a sign your body is fat adapted where you're actually, your liver is creating ketones, which is a byproduct of fat metabolism. So our, our brain itself, we can't get fatty acids, which are a great fuel source into the brain. So the brain, so the, the liver actually converts fatty acids into a smaller compound that's water soluble called ketones. And those can cross into the blood, in, I'm sorry, into the, through the blood brain barrier, into the, into the brain where they can be used for energy. And when we're able to use these ketones for energy, we feel great even when our blood sugar is low. So that's one caveat. However, most people that have a, blood, a fasting blood sugar lower than 80 don't feel very good. They're usually uh, hypoglycemic. But again, there could be caveats if they're really taking good care of their body and they are, um, you know, they do feel great in that state. That's that's awesome. And also on top of that, somebody might actually have a fasting blood sugar up over 100, but feel really good as well. And this is something we call dawn phenomenon, where in the morning for certain individuals, they get perhaps just a little bit more cortisol release. And it typically happens with very lean individuals. In fact, I'm one of those types of individuals where my fasting blood glucose will be a little bit higher. However, you know, I feel great throughout the day and I'm able to fast for long periods of time. I have great mental energy. I, my mood is fantastic. So that is not necessarily a sign that we, that I have prediabetes, whereas you know my fasting glucose might indicate that. 
Um, you know, if it's up 100, 110, typically is a range we call pre-diabetes, roughly 100 to 126. Over 126 fasting blood glucose, that's that's where, where we diagnose diabetes. So a couple other things we can look at. One is hemoglobin A1C, which is basically a 90 to 120 day range where we're looking at what's happening to those red blood cells, what level of glycation. Remember how I talked about when a sugar molecule binds to a protein, it creates this advanced glycation end product. So we're looking at how much damage is taking place to these red blood cells over the course of their lifespan, which is roughly 90 to 120 days. And so we want the hemoglobin A1C really to be under 5.2 and ideally under five. Okay, now to be diagnosed with prediabetes, it needs to be up at 5.7 and to be diagnosed with diabetes, it's at six and a half. So there's a big difference there. So when I'm looking at that, I'm looking at, okay, how well is this person maintaining a stable blood sugar throughout the course of the day on a day-by-day basis rather than just one measurement at one time in the morning? And that's super critical to look at. And then also, it also tells me how good are they at, at actually getting rid of damage glycated blood cells. When somebody's more inflamed, their liver gets more sluggish and they're not as good at metabolizing damaged red blood cells. And so they end up with more of them in their bloodstream, which results in a higher hemoglobin A1C. And obviously that's a sign that we're not getting enough oxygen delivery to the cells. So our mitochondria, again, are going to go back into that hypometabolic pro-oxidative state, and it's going to turn up all the inflammatory pathways. So we can look at that. And there's also continuous blood glucose measurements. Now, looking at fasting blood glucose, hemoglobin A1C, and then I also mentioned the fasting insulin. Those are all great tests. When you go in for your blood work, tell your doctor you want all three of those, all three of them, okay? If your blood glucose is, let's say, 105, but your fasting insulin is three, that's fine. It's actually really, it's you're doing great. You're, you're, you're insulin sensitive. And that's just what we call the dawn phenomenon, particularly if your hemoglobin A1C is also 5% or less. However, if you're seeing all of those out of balance, if you're uh, fasting blood sugar, you know, and for some people our fasting blood sugar is good, but their insulin is 12 and their hemoglobin A1C is let's say 5.6, right? This is a sign this person's developing insulin resistance. They're driving up inflammation in their body. And so that's, that's a big issue as well. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about is continuous blood glucose meters. So you can actually get one of these um, and you can ask your doctor, especially if you've been diagnosed with prediabetes or diabetes in the past, then uh, your doctor would be much more likely to get it for you. There's also companies like Levels, for example, that where you can actually order one. Um, and you can actually, it's very easy to put on, you put it on the back of your arm and then you get a little app on your phone and you can actually be testing your blood glucose at all times throughout the day. So you can see how stress impacts it, how a good night's sleep impacts it, how a bad night's sleep impacts it, how the foods that you're consuming impact it, how much caffeine might impact it. So you can look at all of those things and kind of get a, you know, in the moment reading uh, just of what's happening based on the scenario that you're in. And that's great feedback. It really helps you customize a, you know, your, your lifestyle plan to keep blood glucose, blood sugar, and inflammation under control.
I love how specific and tactical you were there and giving, you know, specific numbers and specific tests. Cause these are things, if you're listening to this, you can take these things away from this and go share them with your doctor and get some great information. And if you're listening to this right now and you're finding it helpful, be sure to hit the like button. If you're on the podcast or on the YouTube channel, hit the share button, share it with somebody, you know, that you think it would be really helpful for them to hear this. Uh, because I know we're about to get in some really awesome information here. So let's talk about Dr. Jockers. How do how do blood sugar and insulin impact bone health? Yeah, for sure. So when we think about bone health, what most people don't realize, most people think it's a calcium issue, right? You either have enough calcium and then you have strong bones, or you don't have enough calcium and then you have weak bones. But actually, what happens with osteoporosis is actually an inflammatory process. And so inflammation actually degrades the protein matrix and blocks the ability of the you know bone cells to really absorb key nutrients that they really need to be able to heal and regenerate. And so we think about osteoporosis instead of, and there may be a malabsorption or a nutrient deficiency component to it, but we really need to lump it into this category of chronic inflammatory conditions, just like heart disease, cancer, neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's. And some people have a higher genetic propensity to have something like osteoporosis. And, and also, you know, obviously it really trends towards females because the, the key role that estrogen plays when it comes to osteoporosis. I know for you, you had celiac disease, which is a chronic inflammatory condition as well. And so not only were you not absorbing nutrients properly, but you're you're creating massive inflammation throughout your whole body. And that was one of the major components of why you ended up developing. Um, it was osteoporosis, right? By the time they did the DEXA scan, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, so really to prevent osteoporosis, as I know you teach, we have to keep inflammation under control. And, you know, there's this really key component between gut health and obviously bone health, because we know the gut is where most, that's really, you know, if you ever ask somebody, hey, where does your immune system live? Most people have no idea. They're like, I, I don't know. It actually lives in the mucous membranes. That's where roughly 80 to 90% of your immune system is in the mucous membranes of your body. And the largest area of mucous membrane is actually your gut. You also have it in your sinuses, your lung epithelium. Um, and those mucous membranes, that's where your natural immunoglobulins live. And it's so critical to keep your gut lining healthy, strong, and the mucous membrane uh, that, that kind of lives right above the gut lining. Um, you want to keep that really hearty and very sensitive and very healthy um, in order to have the proper immune response. And we want to keep inflammation under control. So inflammation is a very important process, but it should be short-term where we may have heightened immune, heightened inflammatory process if we have trauma, injury, um, damage to our gut from, let's say we eat a bad meal or something like that. We might have that. There's really no way of getting around it. However, we should be able to keep that under control and heal and reset our system within a, sh a fairly short period of time and get all the inflammation under control. If we have chronic sputtering, high levels of inflammation, that's when over time, 20, 30, 40 years, we start developing these chronic inflammatory conditions such as bone loss, osteopenia, osteomalacia, osteoporosis. And especially, you know, for somebody that doesn't 
have a baseline early on in their life, you know, in their 30s or 40s or something like that. And then 20, 30 years, of, I've had some people that have had IBS for decades and have never addressed the underlying issue. And then all of a sudden they have severe osteoporosis and they found out because they've fractured multiple times. Mm. Uh, and, and a lot of times it could have been something that started a long, long time ago. So getting these objective markers ahead of time is so, so important. Uh, and I'm glad you, you brought that up. And then even, even in terms of the impact of blood sugar on, on bone health too, as you were talking about that, I was just thinking about, you know, high blood sugar, that's going to damage the kidneys also and damage kidneys. They're going to have a much harder time reabsorbing calcium. And then you touched on advanced glycation end products, which these are, these proteins are deformed, right? They're not going to work like normal proteins and your bones are 50% protein by volume deformed AGE proteins, they're actually going to replace healthy collagen protein in your bones. So you have to be aware of these things. So blood sugar, inflammation, all of these things that we're talking about right now are really, really important. So can we talk about maybe the importance of, as we're talking about the gut, maybe the importance of proper stomach acid production for bone health? Yeah, for sure. Well, stomach acid is so key. We talked about pathogens getting into our bloodstream you know, we get a large pathogen load every time we eat food. So even if it's well cooked, you know, we think it's kind of fully sterile, you know, the moment it's exposed to air, we're getting pathogens on and, and high, high amounts of bacteria and different microbes on that food. Some very good for us, some not so good for us. We consume that food and our stomach acid, it, its first job is to actually sterilize the food that's coming in. And at rest, when we're just sitting here at rest between meals, the pH of our stomach should roughly be, be between around 3 to 3.5. Now, that's actually very acidic, okay? At, you know, if you look at water, water is neutral. It's roughly 7.0. And there's actually a really big difference in the pH level of something that's 3 to 3.5 versus 7. And as we eat food, particularly large proteins, like let's say a steak, we actually need to bring that stomach acid from that range of 3 to 3.5 down to roughly 1.5 to 2.2 in order to really metabolize, sterilize that food, break that protein down into amino acids where they can be really digested well to be able to chelate the minerals, key minerals like iron, zinc, calcium, magnesium. And that's very energy demanding in order to be able to produce that stomach acid. Now, in our society, we're typically eating on the go all the time, right? We're eating, we're busy, so we're eating food while we're doing a whole bunch of other things. And when we do that, that's counterintuitive. So in order to produce that stomach acid, we actually have to activate our vagus nerve, which is uh, this large nerve that comes from our brainstem down into all our visceral organs. And it's part of the what we call the parasympathetic branch. And so that we have a when when we look at the part of our nervous system called our autonomic nervous system, which which basically means automatic. We don't have to think about it. This is what controls our heartbeat, our breathing rate, um, our ability to digest and absorb nutrients. We're not thinking about that, but we have two branches. We have our sympathetic, which is also called our fight or flight part of our nervous system, and then we have the parasympathetic, which has to do with resting, healing, digesting, and reproducing. So those are antagonists. When we are in fight or flight, so if we're really busy, we're trying to get a whole bunch of things done, we're exercising, right? We're stressed out. 
that is all part of that fight or flight. When we're doing that, we're not, our system is not going to be focused on digesting food. It's not going to be focused on producing, let's say, you know, anabolic or, or healthy hormones that support our, our, you know, our, our libido or support, um, you know, our, our, our skin health and all the different tissues, all the all different systems of our body. We're not going to be healing. We're trying to, we're basic. Our body is, we're, we're sending a signal that we're in survival mode and that's good for short periods of time, like exercise. For example, we know there are great benefits to that. It's great for short periods of time. We want to be really, really great at adapting to that stress and be super resilient and, and hard to kill in a sense. Um, however, we don't want to be there for too long. We want to be there for short periods of time. And then we want to spend most of our time in this parasympathetic state where we're really focused on digesting our food, resting, healing, regenerating. And so when we're eating a meal, it's really important that we take some time, relax our body, tell our body, okay, we're in a safe space here. And when we do that, we start to activate that parasympathetic nerve. We're able to produce the digestive juices necessary to metabolize our meal, stomach acid, bile, pancreatic enzymes. And again, stomach acid, first thing it does is it sterilizes. When we get the pH down, kills off a whole bunch of those pathogens that would drive up inflammation in our body. Second thing it does, breaks down proteins. Third thing, it helps to activate the absorption of vitamin B12, as well as key minerals like iron, zinc, calcium, magnesium that are so critical for our body. On top of that, it, when our stomach acid gets low enough where it needs to be, it activates the opening of our pyloric sphincter which then allows food to move into the small intestine and it activates receptors in the, in the front part of the proximal part of the small intestine that trigger the release of bile. And bile is an alkaline substance that comes in to kind of help neutralize the acid. And bile is also antimicrobial. So there's some bacteria that survive, they love acid, but they don't do well in a very alkaline environment. So it helps kind of kill off or, or keep those under control because we actually don't want a whole lot of microbes in our small intestine. We want a lot of really good stuff in our large intestine and it will, we'll, we'll get there, right? But we don't want a whole lot in our small intestine. So stomach acid and bile help keep the microbial load under control and balanced if we get the right release there. And then of course, bile is really important for fat emulsification, to break down fatty acids, to absorb key fat soluble nutrients like vitamin D, which we know is so critical for bone health, um, as well as vitamin E, vitamin A, all super critical for bone health, as well as you know all organ systems and keeping inflammation under control. And then it also releases from our pancreas at the same time the bile is being released, we also release bicarbonate, which again is alkalizing, as well as, and along with the bicarbonate comes all these powerful digestive enzymes, pancreatic enzymes to help metabolize our meal. So we are able to break down the food. The bolus is what we call it when it's kind of pre-digested from the small, from the stomach moving into the small intestine to break down that bolus into very, very tiny absorbable nutrients, amino acids, um, you know, vitamins, minerals, fatty acids, right. That we can now absorb glucose now that we can absorb into our system and utilize for energy and all the other vital functions that we need it for. When we don't get that good release, for example, if we don't get enough stomach acid, we don't open that pyloric sphincter. And now food will actually sit in the stomach and rot and gas will be produced that opens up the esophageal sphincter, which is not the way we want to go. So we open it and it's normally closed when we're eating. It opens up and now food and acid 
will jump into the esophagus and burn that tissue. And we may develop, you know, acid reflux, or we may develop, you know, silent reflux, like I was talking about. Some people feel it, some people don't. Um, and now that's a sign that we're not absorbing nutrients and we're driving up inflammation. We're getting tissue damage here in the esophagus, and that's going to drive up inflammation throughout the body. And we're also going to, it's also a sign we're going to get poor nutrient absorption, poor bile release, poor pancreatic enzyme release. And now we're creating a dysbiotic environment in that small intestine and more inflammation and stress in the small intestine. And we're going to have a lot of problems there. And what most people do in that situation where you just talked about that we've got too much, too little stomach acid that then creates the reflux. What do most people do in that situation? They do PPIs, right? Yep. Tums and they H2 think they have too much acid, but they actually have too little. Exactly. So that's, we, we need to address the underlying root cause issue. And as you we were going through that and talking, talking about the digestive system and all these enzymes and fluids and things like that, that we produce, our body is designed to help support uh, the the functions that we need it to, to be our best, healthiest selves. So can we maybe talk about just a few, what are some foods that you like to incorporate into a plan? Maybe that support healthy blood sugar levels that are, that are anti-inflammatory, that are maybe supportive of bone health too. For sure. Well, you want to focus on a blood sugar stabilizing nutrition plan. So I'm a huge advocate of getting good quality proteins. That's really what you want to prioritize first. And I recommend getting roughly about 30 to 40 or more grams of protein in each meal, depending on your body size and your activity level. So if you're you know, lifting heavy weights, uh, particularly if you're a male and you're lifting heavy weights, you might need more than 40 grams of protein in a meal. If you're a female and you're, you're trying to stay active, but you, you know, in general, you're a lower, uh, you know, muscle mass type individual, 30 to 40 grams is fantastic. That's going to create satiety. So you're not going to feel hungry. You're not going to have the cravings. It's going to help stabilize your blood sugar. And it's going to provide the key amino acids that your body needs. And I like to get those from grass-fed or pasture-raised animal products or wild-caught seafood. So wild-caught seafood is fantastic. You know, a lot of those foods, wild-caught salmon, for example, rich in omega-3 fatty acids that are so anti-inflammatory for your body, rich in something called astaxanthin, wild-caught salmon, which is one of the most powerful antioxidants for your body. Um, Pasture-raised, grass-fed, organic animal products are going to be rich in a wide array of nutrients as well as those the good quality proteins. So we definitely want to focus on that. Then what we want to focus on are getting some healthy fats. Now we're going to get it in some of those animal foods, but we can also get it from things like extra virgin, fresh pressed, extra virgin olive oil, which is super rich in polyphenols, as well as vitamin E and monounsaturated fats that are so good for stabilizing blood sugar, avocados or avocado oil, um, coconut oil. You've got grass-fed butter, for example. That's another great healthy fat source. So all of those are fantastic. And then we're looking at trying to get a lot of colorful fruits and vegetables in our diet. When we get a lot of a wide variety of colors, each of those colors has unique nutrients. We call those polyphenols in particular um, or other you know antioxidants that they may have as well. And these all help support your gut microbiome. They all help reduce oxidative stress and inflammation in your system. So you're trying to make your meals very, very colorful. So things like red cabbage, um, broccoli, cauliflower, arugula, like I know we talked about earlier today, one of my favorites, getting some of those bitter herbs, arugula, parsley, cilantro, radishes, artichokes. I love artichokes as well. These bitters really help to stimulate bile flow. They actually help to activate 
Um, stomach acid production, ginger would be another really good one. And you can get some of these in, in teas as well, um, which will actually help stimulate, they help stimulate your vagus nerve and help stimulate the production of stomach acid, bile, and pancreatic enzymes so you get better digestion. So trying to get a lot of those things in, getting a lot of colors. Um, you know, if you're able to do nightshade vegetables, tomatoes, bell peppers are fantastic. Um, you know, each color has unique nutrients. Mushrooms, for example, are kind of like in the white color category. And they have something called beta glucans in there that are polysaccharide that actually helps support and strengthen your immune system. They also have adaptogenic compounds, tertrapenes that help your body adapt to stress. You've got things like in that same category of white hearts of palm, which is a really powerful prebiotic type food that you can consume. Um, you know, reds, you've got lycopene, for example, and red fruit. So lycopene would be like, uh, you know, you're going to get that in tomatoes, for example. Red fruits like raspberries, pomegranate, strawberries have things like allagic acid in there, which is really powerful and great for your, your microbiome and helps you helps strengthen your intestinal lining. So there's some great compounds that you're going to find in those red foods. Blue foods, blue or purple, have resveratrol and pterostilbene, which um, and anthocyanins, which are really great for reducing oxidative stress and reducing the the well, basically um, helping to slow down the process of aging in your body. So you can find, I mean, talk about any any certain compound, any sort of vegetable or fruit. I mean, you're going to find very unique compounds in there. So prioritize a protein, make sure you've got healthy fats on board and then lots of colors and you're going to do really well. That's empowering. That's exciting. You know, I'm thinking of abundance. A lot of times when people think about, oh, I have, I have to eat healthy. And you, you immediately think about all the things you used to love that you're cutting out. We can also focus on all the things we have the opportunity now to include and incorporate and all these bioactive compounds that you may not otherwise get. So I'm really glad you touched on all those. And I know you mentioned intermittent fasting uh, earlier also. Let's talk about that just briefly, maybe for, for how does that actually help reduce inflammation as well? Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, we talked a lot about foods and foods you can consume in order to heal, but actually the most anti-inflammatory thing you can do from a nutrition perspective is actually fast. By not eating, you reduce mechanical stress on the gut lining. So we talked about if there's tears and damage to that gut lining, you got to think about it like almost like a sprained ankle. So if you have a sprained ankle, you're not going to go out and run, right? You're not going to do high impact activities. So taking the high impact off the gut itself gives it time to heal and repair. So whether it's intermittent fasting or maybe just like doing something where the blender, like a smoothie where the blender is already broken down. Um, you know, the food and made it to a point where it's just basically at its smallest level. And now it's very easy to absorb or doing a bone broth or something like that. That's going to take a lot of mechanical stress off the gut lining and give it more time to heal and repair. And then on top of that, actually intermittent fasting helps to diversify your microbiome. So in your gut, you actually have these, you have two classifications of microbes. You have primary feeders who are typically larger and live above the gut mucosa. And then you have secondary feeders that are typically smaller and live deep within the mucosa. All right. And so the, when we're eating every few hours, like a lot of people are, particularly if we're not eating great foods, we are, we are feeding and preferentially favoring the primary feeders and we get less nutrients seeping into the mucosa and feeding the secondary feeders. 
in a sense, we crowd out. So we get an overgrowth of the primary feeders and we get an undergrowth of the secondary feeders. The way I think about it is like this. In my yard here, I have got an apple tree and I've got a blueberry bush. And every year we actually have to go and trim the hedges, trim some of the branches off the apple tree. Otherwise it grows really abundantly and it oh, and it actually crowds out. It actually uh, covers and has too much shade for the blueberry bush. And then we don't get blueberries. So we actually have to trim or break down some of that apple tree and limit the amount of apples that we get in order to get blueberries. Well, this is kind of what intermittent fasting does and how it shapes the microbiome is that it actually trims down the amount of primary feeders, which allows for more nutrient sites and just more space for the secondary feeders to be able to develop. And one of the key secondary feeders is something called Ackermansia mucinophilia. Mucinophilia means mucus loving. And when microbiome researchers, you know, they've been studying the microbiome for the last 20 years. And what they found is across the board, higher levels of Ackermansia mucinophilia are correlated with lower levels of chronic inflammatory conditions. And so what does this do? Ackermansia mucinophilia breaks, it can, it can live off mucus, but it also loves polyphenols. So when we are giving ourselves time between meals or intermittent fasting, condensing our eating window, let's say we're eating in instead of a 12 hour window, maybe we're eating in a eight hour eating window. So we're eating between 10 AM and 6 PM or something like that. It gives it time for the primary feeders to kind of die down a little bit. And now the secondary feeders are able to get a lot of these polyphenols, which they love. And so when we eat the polyphenols, we it, they break them down and they actually create something called urolithins, particularly urolithin A. Urolithin A then gets into the intestinal cells and stimulates something called mitophagy, which is this breakdown of damaged mitochondria in the intestinal lining. And then it stimulates the production of new healthy mitochondria. And, we, and mitochondrial biogenesis, where the intestinal cells now have young, very stress-resilient mitochondria and more of them than they would have if we hadn't done this. And you know, in a sense, the resiliency of a cell is, is going to be dependent upon how well-functioning the mitochondria are and how many, the, the overall number and the function of these mitochondria. And we want our intestinal lining cells, our enterocytes, I and mean, we want all the cells of our body, but in particular, the enterocytes to be as stress resilient as possible. And that's what happens when we are doing this sort of intermittent fasting. We give our body that period of time, that time to heal. We also trigger and stimulate autophagy, which is again, this process of breaking down old damaged cells. So we talk about bone, right? When there's old damaged, you know, bone cells, right? We're breaking those down and we're turning, we're taking the raw materials, recycling them and creating new healthy bone tissue, new healthy collagen tissue in our bone. So we have a stronger bone matrix. So this is the process of intermittent fasting actually tells our body, okay, now it's time to heal and repair. And we're able to get this process. And so I, I look at intermittent fasting as kind of a core component, a lifestyle component, depending on the individual, depending on their activity level, depending on their body size, um, you know, and, and their, and their blood sugar and insulin sensitivity is going to really, that's, and their schedule, that's going to really dictate what sort of intermittent fasting schedule that, that they're going to run. But typically I'm recommending people eat their meals in a 10 hour window at the very least, right? So 10 hours during the day. So you fast 14 hours overnight. So let's say you finish your last meal at 8 at 8 PM. You don't eat again until 14 hours later, which is roughly 10 AM. 
right? So during that period of time, drinking water, um, non-caloric beverages, that's fine. You know, herbal teas, things like that. Even black coffee can be fine for most people, um, but you're not consuming calories. And then you consume your calories in a 10 hour eating window. And then depending on your, you know, how you feel with that, you might tighten that window up eight hours or six hours. And you may not do that every day. You may just do 10 hours most of the time. And then, you know, a few days a week, you might do an eight or six hour window. And then if you're able to, and this is a great test of your metabolic flexibility and your ability to burn fat is one day a week, do roughly a 20 to 24 hour fast where you're more or less like eating one meal, one day a week. Okay. And when you're able to do that, that's going to trigger deep levels of autophagy in your system and deep levels of fat burning and, and cleansing. And you're going to get even greater anti-aging benefits when you're able to do that. Now, the key there is you got to make sure you're consuming the protein, like we talked about, the nutrients when you are eating. So you don't want to undereat when you are eating. However, you just eat less often. And when you do that, that's when you're going to get these great benefits, these great inflammation reducing benefits and uh, deep cellular healing benefits that come with intermittent fasting. This has been a fascinating episode. I know we're we're at our time here and uh, I've really, really enjoyed this one. And I want to thank you again so much for your time. Where where can people find you, Dr. Jockers? For sure. Well, drjockers.com. Also my podcast, the, the Dr. Jockers Functional Nutrition Podcast. And uh, if you go there, you're going to find Kevin's interview, uh, which should be coming out here soon. And uh, we went on a deep dive into bone health and uh, he was a great guest, but check out my, my, my podcast website, drjockers.com, social media, YouTube, I'm, I'm all over there. And I also have an inflammation crushing smoothie guide uh, with some of my favorite smoothies that you guys can get as well. So we can put that in the show notes too. Awesome. Sounds good. That's perfect. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad we had this episode. It's been great having you on here. And remember for everybody listening to you can always find Bone Coach, all the different social channels, Facebook, YouTube, Pinterest, TikTok, at Bone Coach. And then you can find us on Instagram at Bone Coach Kevin and uh, all your favorite uh, podcast channels plus the Bone for the Bone Coach podcast. And the last thing I would say is you can always find that free Stronger Bones Masterclass in the show notes below. All the show notes that we mentioned here today, you can find over at bonecoach.com forward slash Dr. Jockers, osteoporosis, bone health. I want to thank you again so much for your time. We'll see you in the next episode. Hope you found this episode of the Bone Coach Show helpful. You can find all the resources, show notes, everything mentioned over at bonecoach.com. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, be sure to share it with someone you love, a friend, family member, even a group of people. And also be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode that can help you improve your bones, your health, and your future. One last reminder, if you haven't done so already, head over to bonecoach.com for more great resources to help you get on the path to stronger bones and an active future. I'm your bone coach, Kevin Ellis. I'll see you in the next episode.